thank you for your donation to Corbono, a nonprofit organization dedicated to the study of Scripture according to the mind of the Catholic Church. If you like this talk, we invite you to share our website, www.corbono.com, with others so that together we may participate in the evangelization of the third millennium. Our speaker, Najim Awad, lives in San Diego, California with his wife and seven children and has been studying and teaching scripture since 1995. Najib believes the Catholic Church holds and teaches the fullness of truth, and with his tremendous zeal and insight, he is able to communicate that raw truth without sugarcoating the teachings of the Catholic Church. He also believes that our job is not to change the truth, but to communicate it clearly and directly to others. And now, here's Najib. So tonight we continue our study of the book of Numbers, and we are now in chapters 7 and 8. In these two chapters, we're going to cover four points. Uh, The first one being the chieftain's initiatory gifts. The second, the lighting of the menorah. The third is the purification of the Levite's workforce. And the fourth, the age limit for Levitical duties. It's a pretty technical two chapters. We're just going to go through them, try to understand what they're doing, and what is the purpose of it? And there are some interesting um, elements we're going to be able to pull out of that study, particularly as it relates to the regulation of our monasteries. Because you will see that there is definitely two, um, two classes. There are the priests, and then there are the lay folks helping them, which form the basis for our brothers. Right? So uh, this uh, structure and organization is already present um, in, um, in, uh, in numbers as it pertains to the work around the tabernacle. So on chap- in chapter 7, uh, let's, let's recall where we are right now. We are, uh, again, there at the foot of Sinai. They have not let, yet let. The, excuse me, there was a census that was done first to count all the men of age who can go to war among the tribes, excluding Levi. There were some regulations given to them. And then there were a second census among the Levites themselves to figure out who would be able to assist the priests in performing the duties required for the um, for uh, the bringing down, if you will, and putting back up of the tabernacle. These folks are not priests. They're lay folks who are there to assist the priests. And recall that there are three groups of Levites, the Gershonites, the Kohorites, and the Merorites. The first and the third are responsible for really the outer tent. So uh, the Merorites are responsible for the carrying of all the wood required to put that tent back up. And the Gershonites are responsible for the cloth cloth and, uh, and all the material. Whereas the Koharites are responsible for the most holy things. And then there were also some regulation that uh, the Lord gave concerning the purification of the camp. And it went from closest to furthest. No one could approach the holy things. No one should see them. No one should touch them, lest they die. Then there were some regulations given regarding those who were impure. 
because of leprosy, because of uh, bloodletting, or because of touching the dead. And then there were also further regulations given in a specific case where a man is, um, is taken by the spirit of jealousy and believes that his wife has um, um, betrayed him, but he has no proofs. And we went through the whole um, ritual, what was supposed to happen and why. And then we also addressed the very specific case of the uh, temporary Nazarite who may have broken his vows, what they have to do. In all these instances, they're really pointing out to the same fundamental thing that God is trying to get his people to understand. And that is, in the face of holiness, purity is required. In the face of holiness, purity is required. And we're gonna, we are going to come back and revisit this again, particularly in this uh, season of Lent, since this is the fifth week of the season of Lent. Now, in this chapter, there is another aspect to this whole purification that um, God w- wants to emphasize, and that is offering and sacrifices. And that's what we're going to see in chapter 7, this these offering sacrifices being made by the chieftains. And then the um, chapter 8 deals specifically with the way the menorah must be lit and the purification that has to happen again of the workforce. So if you keep that in mind, you're going to have to sort of back up a little bit from all the technical details and ask yourself the simple question, what is God up to? Because this is very peculiar And it's uh, very much unheard of in most of the ancient world. This detailed prescription and insistence on purity. And why is God doing that? In order for us to understand what's behind this, uh, we might uh, be helped in thinking about the way we apprehend venial sins the way we approach sin in general, but most particularly venial sins. The fundamental issue is one of, um, of the acuity of our conscience, if you will. Problem is, so we share a problem that the, the Israelites had, namely, we're all born into original sin. As a result of that, the consequence of original sin, and remember, We're not born committing original sin. That sin was committed once and for all by Adam and Eve. We did not commit original sin. We're not guilty of it. But we suffer the consequences. And there are two consequences that are important to us here. The first one is the fact that our fallen nature tends to evil. On its own, left to its own device, it will tend to evil. And the second one, which is, um, which is uh, related to it, is the fact that our will is weak. And the reason why, more often than not, the reason why the will is weak is because reason cannot perceive the problem to inform the will. So, for instance, let's talk a little bit about Facebook. Many folks have accounts on Facebook. And many folks think it's okay to have an account on Facebook. Why is that? Well, because fundamentally, 
they don't have all the information in front of them to make the right decision. Information has been withheld from them, and they don't understand the end game. Now, even after understanding the end game, there is a part of them, part of us that rebels and might continue to use Facebook because of the convenience. Now, that part is the weakness of the will. Right? That part is the weakness. When we act out of convenience, it's the weakness of our will. And this is what Jesus said, the spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. But even before we get that, we have to have the full information ahead of us, and most people don't. Right? So let me tell you a little bit about Facebook. Because this is, Facebook is absolutely ingenious, but in a very devilish way. It's the, spiritually, it is the working of the devil. And once I tell you why, you'll understand. Imagine, if you will, imagine, if you will, that someone will come to you today and say to you, we want you and your kids to be rats in our lab. We will feed you in the cages. You'll be fed. And we'll give you toys to play with. But we want to put you and your family in a, in a, in a cage and observe you the way we observe rats. How many of you would subscribe? Okay. Because fundamentally, this is exactly what Facebook is. So... You have to understand that when you sign up on Facebook, you effectively have agreed, because no one reads those fine prints, have agreed to have a marketeer observe you 24 hours in your house and learn exactly how you work and how you behave. The genius of Facebook is to have you convinced that in order to have social relationship, you need Facebook. They've inserted themselves in the fabric of relationship. And why did they do that? Predictive marketing. The whole power of Facebook is that you're now rats in their labs. There is no privacy on Facebook. You have to understand that. Most people actually don't care. The, the will has been so weakened, they just don't care about privacy anymore. Why? They don't see the consequences. Fundamentally, on Facebook, you have someone observing you and reading every conversation you have. It is clearly noted in their contract that as soon as one byte, one letter of yours fall on their servers, it doesn't belong to you anymore. It is theirs. As such, they have the right to inspect it, read it, and do whatever they want with it. You've given them that right. So all your conversations, all your pictures, all your dialogues, yes, they'll provide you privacy from others because it's in their interest. They don't want anybody else to do what they're doing. But they have complete access to your entire life, you've given them that access if you're on Facebook. You told them, welcome into my home, sit down and listen to every conversation I have with my friends and my families, watch my pictures, look at everything I'm doing so you can predict what I'm going to do. In fact, the CIO of Facebook now, about two months, uh, two months ago, stated very clearly that he's able to determine how long a relationship will last by the length of time somebody looks at a picture. He's able to determine how long a relationship will last by the length of time someone is looking at a picture. So, let me ask this question. Who watches you constantly? No, no, I'm not done. Wait, 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 wait. wait. <laughs> watches you constantly, tempts you to stand, spend more time focused on yourself and make it look like it's fun. Welcome to Facebook.
Now, even with everything I've told you, the power, the inertia, the power of habit indicates the weakness of the will. You see that? So these are the problems we're facing. And Facebook capitalizes on this. Facebook is an engine to make sin productive. In fact, to make original sin productive. It's it's a stroke of genius. They're very, very smart. The owner of Google, one of the two owners of Google, stated very clearly, emphatically, that today they only need 14 pictures of you to identify you in a crowd. That's where they're going. They want full identification. And they basically said, if you think there aren't 14 pictures of you, Go on Facebook. Right. Uh, the, 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 the CIO of, of Google already stated privacy is gone. There's no, more, there's, no, there's no such thing as privacy. It's over. They want to know everything about you to market to you directly. Not only that, it's a, it's, a, it's, a, it's a treasure trove for marketers, for companies, to know your life. And then, obviously, the next phase will be to insert themselves and be part of your life. And when you're on Facebook, you're basically making it possible for them because you are acquiring these habits of allowing others to observe you. Yeah. It, it is entirely possible. All I'm trying to say is that from their angle, they don't need that. All they need is to make you fat and happy, keep you in their labs, keep you fed, and observe you and eventually influence you because that would be the greatest gain for them. It's, it's an awesome model from a marketing standpoint. I mean, you've got to give it to them. This is an, a genius to make people think that they're getting something for free. Right? Whereas the rule of thumb, for, for, for those of us who have been on, the, on that kind of thing long before the internet was there, if somebody says it's free, run. But we've done the exact opposite. My point, though, my point to you is that back then, Facebook was Egypt. You always have to keep in the back of your mind as you study numbers, Egypt. Never let that fall in the back. Don't think, oh, well, you know, in Exodus, they got out of Egypt, it's over. Okay, that would be unrealistic. To them, Egypt offered all the conveniences you can hope for in a natural style, in, in a natural living. Everything was there in Egypt. Why leave when you could go back? That's the, foremost, the question foremost in our mind. Now, notice how God deals with them. We, as human beings, we would sort of sit down, discuss it, try to give them some counseling, explain to them uh, why it's not a good idea to go to Egypt, etc., etc. Um, God doesn't do that. God shows them with action what He can do, and then He expects them to take these actions seriously and to correspond to them in purity. They can't. I mean, why is God having to give all these directions? Why does He have, why does he have to be a micromanager, in a sense? Why does He have to go down all the way to explaining exactly what has to happen? Because they cannot do it. You understand? He's, hold, he's hand-holding them, and telling them every bit of the way what they must do. Yeah? Why is it that he doesn't do the same with us today? Why is it that when confronted with many, many complex issues, God doesn't give us direction? He doesn't explain to us what we have to do. Pardon? No, they were free too. God, it's, God is not using them as puppets, right? 
They can still refuse, and, and sometimes they do. Why does he have to go down to that level of explanation? Yes. See, here's the deal. Think about it in your own lives. You have two kids. One is six years old, and one is 17 years old. And both of them want food. Do you say the same thing to the six-year-old as you do to 17? To the six, you're going to say, okay, look, here's what you're going to do. You go to the kitchen, the cereals are in this cupboard. You can open that cupboard, you go to this other cupboard, you take the pink bowl. Can't take the white one, because it'll break. Then over there, you'll find the yellow spoon. Don't take the blue, it's your sister, it's going to cause problems. Just take the yellow one. And then for milk, you can't serve yourself, ask your sister. You understand? If you serve yourself, I'm going to do this and then the other. Now after you, right? It's a lengthy process, yes? To the 17-year-old, what do you say? Make sure you clean up after your, yourself. Okay, well, what is the difference between the two? Okay, already know by now. Yeah, so you see, Jesus told us what? Be imitators of me. We are to imitate Jesus. Particularly imitate him in his relationship with the Father. That's one of the most important imitation we have to have of Christ. The way he relates to his Father. As the beloved Son, he has his Father's trust. And he said, whatever I see the Father doing, I do. Yes? There is no need for lengthy explanation. Whatever I see the Father doing, I do. There is a loving relationship between Jesus and his Father. And if we are to imitate him, we would then do whatever we see the Father doing. Therefore, There is no need to be given entire corpus of behavior beforehand because we have a loving relationship with God the Father. Yes? Now, let me give you some perspective on that because none of us really take it that far. None of us take Jesus that seriously. Be imitators of me. Yeah? What is the scope of of, of that statement, be imitators of me? How far can we take it, you think? Pardon? Yes, be perfect. But no, no, let me just give it to you this way. And, and, and hopefully that's going to blow, you up, blow your mind away, just as it did mine when I was thinking through this whole thing. How was this whole universe created? Through whom? No, 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 no. Through whom? Right? The Gospel of St. John. Everything that was made was made through him. And nothing that was made was made, right? Everything was made through him. Yes? Be imitator of me. Create what? Uh, 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 uh. Way bigger than that. A, a world? Yeah, a universe. You're ready for that? Can, can you just imagine what I just said to you? Okay. God the Father created a whole universe through His Son for His Son. Yeah? Yeah? Okay. Who are you? The children of God. God the Father loves you the way he loves his son. Yes? He has only one love to give. In fact, he loves you in that measure that he sees his son in you. Yeah? Didn't Jesus say, 
And you will do greater things than I have done? Yeah? So you really think that if you were to go to God the Father and ask Him to create a universe, He was going to say no? I just want you to reflect on this because our understanding of the love of God the Father to us is extremely limited. It is limited by our capacity to love. What we do is that we make the love of God the Father an image of our own love, small l. We have no idea what that means. So in a relationship such as this one, there is not going to be 14,000 rules because this is given to little kids who don't know how to behave, who mess things up, and you have to put a lot of limitations around them to help them act accordingly in order to grow up and be ready to be given the great gift. We're thinking here, I'm going to buy myself a small lot of land here somewhere in San Diego. I'm going to call myself the king of the hill. And God is looking at this and saying, I want to give you a whole universe, not just a small pot of land. What are you choosing? The devils always tempt us with good things of this world. Because we go back to our senses are weak, our will is weakened, and our relationship with God the Father is weak. So here's a little spiritual exercise for you. You can do every day. Train yourself to do this little spiritual exercise every day, and it's going to bear tremendous fruits in your life. It's very, very easy. Every time you encounter a situation, every time you encounter a problem, Every time things don't go your way, simply say, whatever my, my Father wishes. Let the will of my Father be done. Father, what is your will? In that, you're becoming true imitators of Jesus. This is exactly what He did. Father, let not this cup come to me, but not my will. Your will be done. Whenever you're faced with a situation like this, turn it into a dialogue with God the Father. You're becoming imitators of Christ. And God will show you the way and He will give you peace and understanding. And you truly live like children of God. So the trick is before, before you make a decision, before you allow your will to make a decision, if you can insert right there in that process a short moment of prayer where you turn to God the Father in trust, and you say, God, Father, what is your will? You, you can change the face of the world. Because you become truly imitators of Christ. You understand? Okay, back to numbers. None of that is there. None of that can possibly be there. So now God is doing what? He's taken these people out of Egypt. They're still filled with Egypt. Filled with the desire to sacrifice to gods and receive their fill. Their vices are still there. They're starting to control themselves. God is now showing them. He told them, you will not decide who's going to sacrifice. I will decide. I've taken the sacrificial structure from you because you crave it for the wrong reasons. I will give it only to the Levites. And only according to my way. They can't sacrifice willy-nilly. They can't sacrifice the way they want to sacrifice. They have to follow exactly how I want it done. Why? Because I need to train them into holiness. I need to train you into holiness. 
So observe, God is taking away from them that which they like most in order to give them something they really need. But he's talking to a stubborn kid. He's not talking to somebody who is willingly listening to him. What does that suggest? Even when we are stubborn, even when we are not willingly listen to him, we're not willing to listen to him, he is talking to us. He doesn't stop. He doesn't give up. But we can complicate our lives because then God will be more and more specific and start to put more and more conditions around our life and suddenly our life becomes complicated. Right? Oftentimes, a complicated life, a messed, messed up life, you have debts, you have issues with taxes, you have issues with relatives, you have problems in your family, you're, you're late to meetings, you have not enough time in your day. All of that is a symptom or a syndrome of the spiritual issues that you still have to deal with that you have not dealt with. God surfaces those to show you where you need to make improvement. In chapter 7 then, he goes to this process where now, after they did all that and set up the, the, uh, the, the tabernacle and consecrated it with all the furnishings, etc., they, the leaders of Israel's heads of the father's houses, offered and brought their offering before the Lord. And that's very significant. They come and they make an offering before the Lord on their own. And God tells Moses to accept that their offering. They are the ones who come and make the offering, and God tells Moses, accept their offering. Right? Now notice, these people are not perfect. These people are not clean. These people have not really committed their lives and consecrated themselves to God. God accepts their offering, not because it's perfect and clean and He's really, really happy with it, but because he is a father and he sees the effort. And that's what pleases him. It's the effort. Even though he knows everything, you know, the, the rest of it. He already, but it's the effort. So when he accepts the offering, it isn't because this is perfect and this is exactly what he wanted them to do. It is this divine pedagogy of the father who is saying, I see what you're doing and I accept it. Because this is where you are at right now. And I'll take you where you're at. And I'm going to bring you along. The, the chapter is very careful to list specifically what they all offered. Every head of the tribe is listed. So the 12 uh, tribal chieftains jointly contribute expensive gifts to the completed consecrated tabernacle. They give six carts and 12 oxen for the use of the Gershonites and Merorites in transporting the dismantled tabernacle. The, Gershonite, the Gershonites and the Merorites do not have to carry it themselves on their shoulders. They just have to put it into carts and transport it. So the carts are given by these tribes as a gift to them. And individually and on successive days, each chieftain contributes to the consecrated altar the identical gifts, which are one silver bowl, one silver basin, each filled with choice flour and oil for cereal offerings, one gold ladle filled with incense, and the same number and kind of sacrificial animals. And every contribution is duly recorded, and the totals are summed up. Okay. God expects the laity to provide for the needs of the church. It is their duty. Just as, essentially, it was the duty of the uh, tribes to provide for the need of the Levites. 
They give them the carts. They give them the oxen to carry everything. God expects that. It's your duty to help and sustain the church. Right? So when, during Mass, you're, you make an offering, understand this is your duty. Right? And if all you can do is put a buck in that, in that um, um, basket, you need, at the very least, to go back home and look at your budget and ask yourself this question, why am I giving only so little to God when it is my duty to support the church? God has, has the only place, you know, you, you're not supposed to put God to the test. This is repeated multiplied in Scripture. You can't say, Lord, I'm going to jump from the fourth uh, story and you're going to catch me. That's putting God to the test. Can't do that, right? There's only one place where God explicitly tells us to put him to the test. In tithing. Tithing. Tithing means you start with, when you do your budget, you put in what you're, what you're bringing in monthly. And the first line item under that is 10% of that. That's tithing. That's what you give. That's a duty. This is not almsgiving. Almsgiving is beyond, is over and above tithing. It's just tithing. And then you do the rest of your, your, your budget this way. And God said, put me to the test. Do it and see what I will do with you. Okay? So do not be afraid to try something like this, even on a temporary basis, and see how it goes. But it's important to understand this is part of what we have to give to God. Our ways of supporting His work. He expects that. Because, as St. Augustine says, what have you that you have not been given? Right? What have you that you have not been given? So God is giving you Expecting you, expecting you to trust Him in return. Everything that they give is set before the tabernacle. Nothing enters the tabernacle. Right? No animals could enter the tabernacle, and neither could these men enter the tabernacle. Only the priests would be able to walk in. So the Merarites were given more carts than the Gershonites because the planks that they carry are heavier. And so that makes sense. However, the... Um, the uh, the Kohorites did not get wagons. Because all the sacred things were to be carried on their shoulders. And that's very significant. God expects us to carry the sacred things. Because only us are fit for them. Only us are fit for them. Right? So the notion of consecrated hands carrying the sacred things very important to God. And it's, it's sort of interesting to notice that in 1 Chronicles chapter 13, verse 7 through 10, remember in 2 Samuel 6, verse 3 to 8, there was this one Levite named Uzzah who was helping bring the tabernacle, the Ark of the Covenant, into Jerusalem. And they put the Ark on an ox. And as the ox was walking up a hill, the ark was about to fall, and Uzzah put his hand on the ark to steady it, and provoking God's wrath, and God smote him. He, he died on the spot. And in 1 Chronicles 13, chapter, chapter 13, verse 7 through 10, uh, we see that Scripture explains that the death of Uzzah 
was caused by David's negligence in allowing the ark to be transported by wagon instead of on the shoulders. The ark should have never been carried by somebody or an animal. It should have been carried on shoulders. Because David neglected that, one man died. So see the importance to which God uh, ascribes to holy things. In verse 10 in this chapter, in chapter 7, there is this notion of the offering for the dedication or the dedication offering. That's the word Hanukkah. Hanukkah, which is celebrated right around Christmas, is not Christmas. has nothing to do with Christmas. And it's actually a minor feast in the Hebrew calendar. Right? We make it a much bigger deal than it really is. Hanukkah is dedication. And that particular one that is celebrated during uh, Christmas time was the celebration that happened after the Maccabees reconsecrated the temple after the temple had been desecrated. Right? So during the Maccabean Wars, the temple was desecrated and a pig was sacrificed inside the Holy of Holies. And the Maccabees came back and reconsecrated the temple. And that feast of Hanukkah during Christmas time is celebrating that particular event. But there are many other places. So the notion is that you can consecrate a place, your home, right? Um, you can purify it. And that's a very ancient tradition among the Jews. And we carry it. So your home should be consecrated. You should have had a priest to come over and bless it. Bless your home, right? You should, as a head of a family, on a regular basis, use holy water, go around your entire house and bless your house. You should have holy water available. Um, you should do these things because they are a way of maintaining God's presence in your house. Your house, particularly if, let's say, um, say you had a couple who, who have been practicing contraception. The practice of contraception means that the house has been defiled. And that means that it is no longer consecrated to God. It's very similar to having a pig sacrificed inside the, the temple. So assume this couple now figured this out and stops, and now are back into the church and no longer practices contraception. Your house should be consecrated or reconsecrated. You should invite the priest over, have him go around the house and bless him. Bless your house. This is important. Bless your bed, bless your room, and on and on, because it is a way of making sure your house is, again, one more time, an abode of God. Yeah, the family needs to be the right, presence of God. Suppose you had a family feud. People came over and was massive anger being exchanged. Words, curses, uh, uh, something really bad. Well, make sure that, again, you bring holy water and you bless the house. Do not neglect the spiritual things. Don't go overboard and think, you know, if there's an ant in your house, it means your house is possessed. Okay, let's not go overboard, please. But on the other hand, this is what we typically fail to recognize these days, recognize the spiritual dimension of your relationships. That's very important to, to uh, take care of it. Yes. No. Um, always remember this, this little uh, story. You have to bless most, especially the bathroom. Yeah, most especially, especially if you have youth in your house. With what we, you know, the problem we have these days, with, especially with masturbation, you absolutely have to bless the bathroom. Yes, I remember all this little story about this this hermit who was in the bathroom, and he was singing a hymn praising God, and the devil appeared to him and said, "Aren't you ashamed to be in such a position, and to pray?" 
that's shameful. And the hermit without, um, you know, without losing one second said, my prayers go up to God. Whatever else I'm doing here comes down to, on you. You're praying. You, 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 you're pray, you're, you're, you want your entire house to be consecrated to God. So I know, for instance, uh, friends, uh, and uh, uh, in some bathrooms you have, you know, like there is one, I don't know where it was, actually in here in the school, isn't it? Where they have angel of God, my guardian, dear, the prayer, the angel, guardian angel. I found it beautiful. Right there in the bathroom. So you get in and you remember your angel. It lifts your spirit to heavenly things, which is wonderful, right? Uh, remember, the body is a temple of God. So no matter where the body is, you want that place to be consecrated. So yeah, absolutely. Yeah. In the end of this chapter, God speaks to Moses from between the cherubim. So Moses enters and st- stands behind the veil, and God is in that is on the ark between the two cherubim on the th- on the on the um, on the judgment seat between the two cherubim, and he speaks to Moses from there. So the same experience that Moses had on the mountain when he saw the fire over that bush that was not consumed, and God is speaking to him. It is continued in the tabernacle. Again, the tabernacle is the mountain that has now become portable. It's the holy mountain that goes with them wherever they may go. Right? And just as God speaks to them from between the, the mercy seats, God speaks to us from the tabernacle or when he's exposed in the blessed sacrament. So again, hopefully you're developing this habit to go and then sit before the blessed sacrament. If you have studies, if you're studying, go study in front of the blessed sacrament. If you're reading a difficult book you can't fully understand, go sit down and read in front of the Blessed Sacrament. If you're trying to figure out what to do next, what issue you have, go sit down and then try to figure out in the Blessed Sacrament. Bring all these things to God because He is intensely interested in all the details of your life. And none of that is unacceptable to Him. Okay, All of that is giving Him glory because you're trusting Him in these things. It is said that a couple becomes truly intimate when they know those little details about each other. Not the big things, but the small things that they keep from everybody. So may God be part of these little details of your life because then you're really making Him part of your life. So in chapter 8, there is these, direction, these directives given, about, particularly about the lampstand. So when you set up the lamps, the seven lamps shall give light in front of the lampstand. And here we have... Sp- um, an indication how this lampstand, that's the, that's the candelabrum. Right? And it's clearly stated that this was the workmanship of the lampstand, hammered work of gold from its base to its flowers. It was hammered work according to the pattern which the Lord has shown Moses, so he made the lampstand. So when you, when you do a hammered work, you take pure gold, and there are really two ways to do it. Either you put the gold between two plates, and the plates have a mold on them, and you hammer the plates, and that mold now is uh, etched on the gold. That's especially when you're making gold coins or silver coins, any other coin. Or in this case, when you're forming the candelabrum, you'll take uh, uh, gold and you will hammer it, literally, to shape it, to give it the shape that you desire. Why was the lampstand made of hammered gold, not just gold? Why didn't they just use a mold and... and, um, uh, fill it with uh, liquid gold and let it uh, dry and then you just break the mold and you get the... Why was it hammered? Because that candelabrum represents Christ. 
and Christ to give light to the world was hammered on the cross. Right? But it is gold, not human flesh, to indicate his divine nature. Right? So that's the that's the key for us to recognize him when for it was also key for them to recognize him when they saw him. And Simeon saw him this way because he recognized in the in a child the one who will give light to the world. And his poem was a candelabrum, seven verses, knowing exactly that this is the true light of the world. Then God tells them, what you have to do is take the Levites from among the people of Israel and cleanse them. And thus you shall do to them to cleanse them. Sprinkle the water of expiation upon them and let them go with a razor over all their body and wash their clothes and cleanse themselves. Then, collectively, they will take a young bull and a cereal offering of fine flour mixed with oil and a second bull for a sin offering. So, the cleansing of the Levites is not the same thing as the consecration of the priests. These Levites are not priests. These are the workers, the lay folks who are there to help them. But they have to cleanse themselves. Now, why take a razor to... By the way, take a razor and... Against their flesh does not mean that they have that the shaving must be um, precise. I mean, it's not they're not required to shave the way, for instance, uh, a um, a, um, a Nazarite would shave his head once he's completed his vows. There, he would shave it the way Egyptians shaved it, perfect shaving. Here, that was not required, but still, they had to take the razor to that. Why were they required to do that? God doesn't like hair on body. Is that it? No, the idea, again, is that of mortification. Right? Mortification. So there's purification with water, then mortification. To remind them that at the end of the day, they were chosen to do work not for themselves, but for God. When you do the work of God, it is, there is built in it a mortification. You have to deny yourself. Most often than not, when God asks you to do something, He's asking you to do it for His sake, not for your own. Not directly, at least. So therefore, there is an angle to this where you're denying yourself. You're sacrificing. You're mortifying yourself. And that was a physical reminder of what they were to do. They have to carry heavy objects. They have to lay aside all their goals, all their wishes, all their interests, all their talents that they had before and focus only on one thing what God has set for them for the good of everyone and then he explains why this is going on this way now listen what so we said they're going to be the sacrifice that happens to two ox the second one is for sin offering and then he says and you shall present the Levites before the tent of the meeting again before the tent of the meeting right that means remember the tent isn't the Tabernacle. The tent is the entire structure. So they're standing outside of the entire structure. Outside the church, so to speak. They can't step in. They're outside. So they have to be outside and assemble the whole congregation of the people of Israel. When you present the Levites before the Lord, the people of Israel shall lay their hands upon the Levites. Obviously, you can't have everybody in Israel doing that. So they'll be the chieftains, the heads of every tribe, who will lay their hands on the Levite. Remember the laying of the hands? We have laying of hands all over the place, right? That's what comes from it. They lay their hands on the Levites. In laying their hands, what are they doing? 
Not blessing, not in this case. No. They're laying upon them their sins. Okay? So they put their hands on the Levites. And what do the Levites do? They carry that themselves? No. Because then the Levites shall lay their hands upon the heads of the bulls. And you shall offer the one for a sin offering and the other for a burnt offering to the Lord to make atonement for the Levites. So the bulls are standing as the sacrificial animals for the Levites, who themselves have replaced the firstborn. Because initially, when God passed over Egypt and killed every firstborn of the Egyptians, He spared the firstborn of the Israelites. But what does that mean? It meant that these firstborn who should have died and were spared have become his property. He has them. And his intent was, plan A, was to make of these firstborn the priests. But after the golden calf, when they rebelled, he substituted for all the firstborn the Levites. So the Levites became the substitute for all the firstborns. And now only them are involved in the priestly function. So that means, I mean, the tragedy behind this, the consequences of this, is there would have been people within the tribe of Judah, Benjamin, and on and on, who probably led a holier life than the Levites, could have been better priests than the Levites, but could not. Not on account of their own wrongdoing, but on what their ancestors did. Hmm? So oftentimes, we deny our actions, our sinfulness, or conversely, our sacrifices and good life become either a curse downstreams or a gift downstreams. And we don't know how it works. Right? But the, the impact of our own actions is absolutely incredible in the grand scheme of things. We only see a little bit of it. So the blessings that we are receiving aren't just for us. They will flow downstreams provided we're faithful. And the curses that we receive aren't just for us. They will also flow. Their effects will flow downstreams. Now the beauty of it though is that even in that situation, even if let's say somebody is suffering from the sins of his forefathers, if that person is dedicated to Christ, he, may, he, may, he or she may still feel the effect of those curses, but they will be for the salvation of his or her soul, not for condemnation. Right? Because of the, the salvific power of Christ. And furthermore, through the healing of the family, um, which you know, I hope you guys will be able to make it to this uh, little uh, retreat we're having here to, uh, on, the, on the 13th, there is the ability to completely be freed from these curses, right? So, this then happens, and then, and so God says, For they are wholly given to me from among the people of Israel, instead of all that open the womb, the firstborn of all the people of Israel. I have taken them for myself. For all the firstborn among the people of Israel are mine, both of man and of beast. On the day that I slew all the firstborn in the land of Egypt, I consecrated them for myself. And I have taken the Levites instead of all the firstborn among the people of Israel. 
And I have given the Levites as a gift to Aaron and his sons from among the people of Israel to do the service for the people of Israel at the tent of the meeting and to make atonement for the people of Israel that there may be no plague among the people of Israel in case the people of Israel should come near the sanctuary. They make atonement. What does that mean? It means this, that oftentimes the plague is technically not a legal penalty. It is a reflex action. God's angry response in the wake of idolatry, rebellion, an unexpiated census, as well as the inevitable outcome of illicit contact with, with the sanctuary. And the priestly tradition effectively restricts the outbreak of divine plague or the wrath for encroachment upon the, the, the sanctuary to the clergy alone. So they really are, they have, the priests have a sacrificial function. So that when there is an out, when somebody comes in or, or violates the sanctuary, the priests are the ones who suffer. And we find this tradition preserved in our, our, in our monasteries and convents because the monks and the nuns are really living sacrifices on behalf of all of us. They pray and offer their lives as a sacrifice to God on behalf of all of us. And that is a tradition that goes all the way back to the service around the sanctuary. So, in all of this, God is therefore very much intent on making His people understand they are consecrated to Him. They are not to decide what they're going to do next based on their own intentions only. He is in control They have a covenant with Him. They better listen. If they don't, there are consequences. If they do, there are blessings. He now took the Levites, formed the priests, and formed all those who are going to assist them in the service of the tent so that they can understand how they're going to live. Now, notice this. If you're an Israelite thinking, well, wait a minute. We're in here. We're going to go to the Holy Land. How long is going to, I mean, to to the land that is promised to us. How long is it going to take? Maybe a month. Why are we spending all this time doing any of that? Because God already knows it's not going to be a month. So all of that is in preparation for the 40 years they're going to spend in a desert. Yeah? Okay. Very good. So we're going to take a quick break and then come back for questions. Yes. Oh, you, um, so what I said to you is that let's say somebody commits a mortal sin and on the spot repents. Has repentance in his heart. He has God's for forgiveness. God will forgive him. That does not mean he's reinserted into the life of the church. In order to be reinserted in the life of the community, so right now he's outside the camp. Right? Just as these lepers and those who were unclean were outside the camp, that doesn't mean God abandoned them, but they just cannot come back into the camp until they're cleaned. Likewise, the only means to be cleansed that Jesus instituted for us is the sacrament of reconciliation. So, we go to it. Now, that does not mean that God, Jesus, cannot act outside of the sacraments. He can. But we're not going to tempt God. So we do what He asks us to do. Yeah? Correct. The reason why you confess before, you go to confession before the priest, because when you commit a sin, you've heard two people, two parties. You've heard God, and you've heard, you've heard the church. So you have to ask forgiveness from God, but you also have to ask forgiveness from the community and the priest stand as the representative. That's one of the reasons. The second is that the graces that you receive, so it's one thing for God to forgive you, meaning he's not going to hold the, 
the, the, the sin against you, right? But the, there's going to be temporary punishment assigned, associated with that. Those are not going to go away, but you ask God to forgive, forgive you, right? On the spot. Unless you have perfect contrition. But most of the time we don't, right? That's the second. And so, therefore, when you go to the second reconciliation, the church has at her disposal the treasury of graces, right? And then in the sacrament, when you do that, you can receive a remission of all temporary punishment associated with the sin. Therefore, that's why you should go to confession. And the third reason, confession is called the tribunal of mercy. Mercy, not judgment. You're not going to confession to be judged. You're going to confession to receive mercy. So God is going to give you, through the sacrament, the strength, the graces you need to overcome it. Apart from me, you can do nothing. So you want to receive the graces to overcome your sin, your tendency to sin. Why are you going to do that? Out there, God forgave you. Yes. But remember what he told the Syrophoenician woman. Actually, what he told him. Yes, Lord. He said, it is not, law, it is not, um, um, it is not um, lawful to give the food of the children to the dogs. He meant by this that the, the, the dogs was a euphemism used to speak of the Gentiles. And Jesus was testing her humility at the same time. But essentially saying you're not going to give the food that is reserved for those who belong to the family of God, to those who are outside. And in her insight, she said, yes, Lord, but even the dogs eat from the crumbs that fall from the table of the children. How do the crumbs fall? The crumbs fall when the children eat. Then the crumbs fall. Therefore, those who are outside receive the graces of God through us. Only through us. Through our prayers, our sacrifices, the contact with us. Therefore, if you say, God, forgive me, and you stay out there, you're not receiving the graces you need to be able to overcome your sinfulness. These are the reasons why you should go to confession. Now, now that's different. If, let's say, somebody's out there, commits a mortal sin, and right on the spot says, God, forgive me, and he's really contrite, right? And he dies. God is not going to condemn him to hell. He will be saved. But he's going to have to spend some serious time in purgatory. Right? Unless he has perfect contrition, which can happen. But we can't use extreme, exceptional cases as the norm. Right? So absolutely, he will be. But usually he'll be in purgatory for a long, long time, which he could have avoided had he gone to confession. Oh, by the way, one more thing. I just forgot. I want to add one more reason why you go to... When you ask God to forgive you for that particular sin, God forgives you for that particular sin. But if you don't say, and for these other things that I haven't done before, I mean, all the things I have not... Right? They're still, they're still there, hanging in the air. Right? So when you go to confession, usually the priest will help you, right? For all these things and other things that I've forgotten, all the things I've done by omission, right? See, sins of omissions are the biggest deal. It isn't the things that we say, it's the things that we forget to say. I'll give you examples. You're at home, and you're in the kitchen. And you're walking by the kitchen, and right there on the floor, there is a banana peel. You don't pick it up. Just keep on walking. You don't confess that, do you? Yeah, you're letting Jesus pick it up. The things that we don't do are worse than the things we do in sin. For, for those who are not committing mortal sins, right? All in the venial sin catalog. All the things that we don't do. Uh, you, you have a colleague at work and he just irks you. We walk by his desk and you don't say hi. Right, you're doing it out of hardness of heart. To spite him. Okay. You're not going to remember that, you're not, right? So anyhow... These are the three reasons why you would go to confession in with a priest. Yeah? Okay. Yes. The question is, how could we have free will if God 
condemns us to hell if we don't love him. It sounds like it's an ultimatum, right? So I'll just put the gun to your head. If you don't love me, I'm going to shoot you. Well, where's the free will? Interesting question, right? Wrong logic. <laughs> this is funny how people do it this way. They, they contrive, they really contrive a problem that doesn't exist and then ask us to solve it. So somebody would say, well, can God make a stone that is so heavy that God cannot lift it? You think about it. Well, if God can make such stone that is so heavy that he cannot lift it, therefore God is not all-powerful. But if God cannot make a stone that is so heavy that he cannot lift it, then God is not all-powerful. Then in all cases, God is not all-powerful. Right? And people fall and drown in a little cup of water, right? Because we never say God can, make ev- can do everything. That's a wrong statement. Yeah, I'm going to get to that in a minute. But, but what I want to explain is, 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 is how the question is framed. So, we, we say uh, the reason, God cannot do everything. God cannot commit sin. Right? God cannot commit a sin. Is that, does this mean it's a restriction on God's power? No. Why? Because what is sin? Sin is not a thing. Sin is the lack of thing. It's the lack of grace. Being Lacking something is not a sign of power as far as I can tell. It's a sign of weakness. God can never lack grace. Therefore, God cannot commit. But that doesn't mean it's a restriction on his power, right? Okay. God will not create a rock that is not so heavy. Why? Because this is defeating the rules, the norms of a created world that God will not violate. And on and on we go. So in that particular case, the question is, how is it that we have free will if God will condemn us to hell if we don't love him? The trick is that God is fundamentally agreeing with us. We're thinking, see, there there are two parts to this. God, when we are when we stand before a personal judgment, yeah, and we are going to be condemned to hell, at the end of what when Jesus lists everything he's going to tell us, we agree with him. We make that choice. He's confirming it. What he's doing is withholding his mercy, which he has every right to do. But he's simply confirming the choice we made. We told him, we don't want to be with you. He is saying to us, You don't want to be with me. I respect your choice. And I'm going to give you what you asked for. Whereas the image that is used by your brother suggests coercion. The victim, in this case, who had the gun to the head, right? Right, but fundamentally, you turn it to Here's how you answer him. You say to him this. Suppose, so suppose you want to go to heaven. And suppose heaven in this place where it's mass. Do you want to go to a place where they celebrate Mass forever? You put the question to him this way, right? If he says no, he says, okay, do you want me to force you to go there? If I force you to go there, would that be heaven to you? God sends you an invitation. If you say no, he respects it because he's not going to force his will on you. And then to make him think, ask him this question and then research it. What is better? What is a greater good for God to send someone to hell or for that person to cease to exist? What is a greater good? A life in hell or no existence? Next question. Yes. Yes. So first question, the candelabrum, what did it mean for the light to go forward? The candelabrum had seven lamps which were detachable. You'd fill them with oil. And the candelabrum stood on the southern part of the tabernacle. 
So if you think about the tabernacle being oriented west to east, you'd enter through the west, and you face the east, looking at the tabernacle. When you enter through the first curtain, to your left, you'd see the candelabrum standing, and to your right was the altar of showbread. So what God wants is for the candelabrum to shed light on the altar. The, 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 seven, the seven lights could be tilted, moved. And he's basically saying, make sure they're facing north so they can illuminate the showbread. Christ, Christ, right? Which this candelabrum represents Jesus Christ in his life on earth. The lamp behind you is the same thing. It represents the light of the world. I am the light of the world. That's what he was thinking of when he said those words. The bread on the, on the, on the, on the altar represents him sacramentally. And it comes from him. That physical bread will be given life through the light of the world. Yeah? Sure. So the question is, elaborating on this thought of us becoming imitators of Christ creating a universe, is that what God is expecting of us? That's one question. The second, how does that relate to the Mormon belief that each and every one of them will become a God and that will create their own universe? Let me answer the second question first. The problem with the Mormon belief isn't that it is too outlandish. It's that it's not enough. They, they don't think big enough. Every, every deviation has a kernel of the truth of the Catholic truth, right? And they do as well. Will we become a God? Absolutely. We will be divinized in the sense we'll remain human beings that will never change. We'll always be human. We're not going to become angels. We're not going to become, you know, another extension of the Trinity as if we became divine with a big D. That's not at all the case. That's why the church likes to use the expression the supernatural life. Right? Supernatural means divinization. It's the same world, but at least it's, clean, it's, it's, it's not as confusing for us to think about it. Right? The supernatural life is the divine life acting in us to, with, the, with the same powers of, of God constrained by our humanity. But then we become really doing the will of God. This is not something God expects of us now. We cannot do that. We are limited because he, we, our relationship to God here is sacramental. And it's the, extent, the extent of this relationship, though, is that we affect this world in supernatural ways. So uh, Padre Pio is a perfect example of that, right? What he could do. Uh, I told you about the fact that in the, in the uh, dialogue of our Lord with St. Faustina, he came to her and said, Daughter, would you like me to create a universe just for you? He actually put that question to her. And her answer was, Lord, what would I do with the whole universe if I have you? Right? A response of a saint. But interesting, he put the question to her. Which means, which kind of gives the inkling that there is no restriction. We restrict ourselves. And the, the reason I'm bringing this out is because we don't dare to pray big. Right? We don't dare to pray big. We don't think we can pray big. But who's to say you just can't pray for the conversion of all the Muslims? All of them. All out of China. Right? Because we're not acting out of ourselves. It's God who acts through us. So sacramentally, we can affect spiritually the world today. But after we, 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 we are joined to Jesus in heaven and we see him face to face, the powers that we receive are going to be much greater than we have now. Because we can, be, you know, we are, we can imitate him and be like him.
Yes. Yeah, we're not going to ask right now for the creation of another universe, if that's what your point is. That, that makes no sense. Yes. Yes. We can only ask what we know, right, at the end of the day. Correct. Absolutely. Do not limit what you ask because of you think, well, I'm just doing this little bit. If we have this conversation with God the Father, we do this little bit, God in his joy of seeing us acting as his children can do everything. That's the idea. Yes. They're the ones who condemn Jesus. Because the problem that they run into, which is the problem we can run into, is we can take the makeshift for the reality. The whole Levitical order was a makeshift put in place to keep the building from completely crumbling Israel until such time where the builder will come and raise the foundation and rebuild it and make it hold, building on the rock. They failed to see that. They thought that these laws that they were given, which were meant to contain them, were true law for holiness, but they're not. And that's the whole argument that St. Paul is using against them. They just couldn't see it. And so today, we sometimes have a tendency to fall into this because we think that all I have to do is say my rosaries and go to Mass and do my things and I'm done. And not make one yoda, one little effort to grow in the virtues. And we're missing the boat. Same Pharisaic mentality. Yeah? Yes. All right, so number one, during that period, there is no concept of heaven. But they, they, they're convinced they always go down to Sheol. There is no other place. The abode of the dead. At this point, there is no concept of heaven. It hasn't yet reached the illumination of the Holy Spirit. hasn't reached deep enough in man's conscience to restore the truth. Well, I don't know where they are. But the point I'm trying to make is that in this old covenant, there is no means of salvation to attain to heaven. It isn't there. It does not mean, again, that God cannot act outside the boundaries of the covenant, and God cannot say, by the power of the cross, I'll move back in time and save specific people. He can absolutely do that. Those are the just. But for the majority, the ways of salvation are not open. They're all under original sin. Nothing in everything we saw so far can wash away original sin. Therefore, they are separated from God. And that's why in a Jewish understanding of the Old Testament, original sin is just one sin among many. It has no lasting effect. They don't share with us the understanding of original sin. You understand? So their sanctification is from the cross. Because we go back to the, the choice that God makes. God is not required to save everyone. It's a privilege. It's a gift of mercy that He gives. That's my point. If you were to do all these things... You are justified, and the door will be open to you, but very few do. You don't have to go back then. You just can look right now, outside the church. The same problem exists. The same exact problem exists. There's no difference between those who live in original sin today, outside the church, and those who lived in the past or in the future. Right? It's the exact same issue. The problem is simple. When you are born in original sin, you're separated from God. The Spirit of God does not live in you. If you remain in original sin, and you do not seek salvation through Christ, there is no salvation for you. Absolutely. By the power of Christ. Yes. Yeah. God's mercy extends. But when I am, everything I'm saying right now is about this covenant. So don't take what I'm saying as the, um, if you will, the pattern by which everybody lived. All I'm saying is that this is the covenant that God is establishing with them, and it is a law that does not give life. That's a paradox for us to ponder. Yeah? 
Yes. Yes, very easy. Um, if you are married, you ask your wife. If you're not married, ask your mom or your dad. Because you go to them and you say, go to those who know you and say, what are the top three things I should improve in? If you don't have a spiritual direction, if you have a spiritual direction, it's much better. It's going to give you straight out direction, tell you, this is what you have to do. If you don't have that, you can get a really good indication by the people who know you. They'll be able to tell you, well, you know what? You, you, you sleep till 10 every day. You should get up earlier. Or when you eat, you eat like 10. You have no control. Or uh, you speak on the phone for hours. Or you take a shower, you spend 45 minutes. Or I don't know. Right? It's usually small things that are very much indicative of a deeper vice. Pick three and work on them. Until you hear them say, huh, you change. And usually... They, they will take a punishingly long time before they notice. You've been done with it maybe months before, and one day they'll go, oh, you know, you're not doing this anymore. Are you all right? Are you saying something wrong with you? This is, this is how it's going to happen. Okay? Yeah, that, that's how. Why? Because a light is not going to be hidden. It is not put under a bushel. It is there to light, to be a light to others. So your virtues are lights to others. They will be noticed. That's how you know. Yeah? Yes. Uh, Another good source, if you're interested in young adults, there is now a manga series on uh, the Gospels. Manga? Manga. You know the manga, the Japanese comics? Okay, you need to get on with the times. (laughs) Just kidding. Just kidding. You know. You know, I've had teenagers. So manga is a specific style of drawing, which is very popular among the teenagers. John Paul II wrote a script for um, the New Testament in manga style. I have my kids quoting from it. So what they'll do, for instance, is that, you know, remember when the disciples are arguing with Jesus or arguing amongst each other who is the, uh, the greatest? Well, I think they gave, um, they gave a microphone to St. John. So he's, he's speaking in a mic. And, and those things catch the attention of the kids. And I find it very funny. So they're quoting from Scripture through manga. It's crazy. But uh, it's a good way of enticing people who've never read Scripture before also into it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You can find the manga series on the Gospel. Google Gospel and Manga. You'll, you'll find it. All right? Yes. Okay. So the uh, question is, what, how do we answer someone who criticizes the Old Testament, particularly, for instance, the, 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 the law of the Italian, an eye for an eye, um, a, uh, a tooth for a tooth, right? Okay, so um, you have to be kind of sensitive because somebody who makes that criticism is showing quite a bit of ignorance about the, the Old Testament, particularly this law, because this law was a significant improvement over what existed before it. Before it, it was the law of vengeance. If somebody were to kill someone else, you were, um, it was perfectly justifiable in the eyes of many to go and wipe out the whole tribe. Right? You act out of pure vengeance. An eye for an eye is basically saying that the uh, punishment of the crime must be proportional to the crime, whereas before there was no such thing. So it's a huge improvement. And by the way, that has not been abrogated. This is a law that still stands. It's not just in the Old Testament. We still do an eye for an eye, even today. That's justice. Our whole judicial system is based upon this notion that the crime, the punishment must fit the crime. That's another way of saying an eye for an eye. Now, we don't necessarily do it in this physical way, but the idea is that if somebody uh, committed a, a small act of larceny, sp- stole chewing gum from a store, you don't punish them for 30 years in jail. That's not proportional. 
or you don't chop their heads, right? It's not proportional. But the fundamental principles that exist. The th- second thing I would say is that um, you can't criticize what you don't know, right? So to this particular person, ask them this question. Uh, ask them this question. Say to them this. Suppose someone meets your mother and says afterwards, how could somebody love a woman who's all wrinkly and has white hair and missing a tooth? How is that possible? Is that an acceptable judgment? Let them think this one over. They're missing the context. They have no relationship. They don't understand. So to many people, the Old Testament look like that. And they think that because they don't understand it, they're qualified to criticize it. Okay, so they shouldn't be doing that. All right? God bless you. We hope you've enjoyed this talk from Carbono. For more information about this and other talks, please visit our website at www.carbono.com. Thank you, and God bless you.